Welcome one more time to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, pastor here at Encounter, and today it's Easter weekend, which is fantastic because if you've been, been taking a fast from like chocolate or sweets or anything else, like you, you get to eat again, which is great. I mean, it took a man dying and coming back to life, but you can have chocolate again today, and that's fantastic. Uh, hey, just a special welcome again to everybody. Uh, if this is your first time at Encounter or just even church in general, we're really glad that you're here here this morning. Uh, today we're going to take a, take a look at a question that I think all of us have asked at one point or another. It doesn't matter if you've been going to church for a long time, whatever church that might be or, or not. It doesn't matter if you're entirely new to this whole Christianity thing in, uh, in general or, or if you come from a different religion entirely. It doesn't matter because, because I think that we've all asked this question is when is God going to do something about that? When is God going to do something about that? And we all have a that, that that we want to ask God about. God, when are you going to do something about that? Maybe you're that, whatever it is. Maybe you drove here with your that this morning. Maybe your that is sitting next to you right now. And I can see you elbowing each other. It's not that dark and you're not that discreet. Whatever your, whatever your that is, I, I want you just to kind of like hold it in front of you. I'm not going to ask you to write it down. I'm not going to ask you to like, you know, raise your hand or pass them. We're not going to do anything weird with it, but it would just be helpful throughout this morning. If you asked that question, if you kind of held your that in your mind, maybe you dropped your that off at the kids' ministry this morning and you're really hoping for a nice long message as a break. What's your that? Now, now those are some of the like, more little things or more of the things that just kind of weigh on us at a low grade all the time. But there's also some significant that's, isn't there? There's also some really big ones that keep you wondering, God, when are you going to do something about that? Maybe in times of a global crisis or, or tragedy, national tragedy, that, that maybe there's a hurricane or there's a tsunami, and, and you point your eyes like right in your hands back up at God, and you say, God, when are you going to do something about that? Well, Jesus actually takes time to address all of the that's by manufacturing a that so that he can teach us about that. Did you catch that? Right? In other words, in other words, Jesus, he creates a that because he doesn't wanna, he doesn't wanna just lecture about it, he doesn't wanna just sermonize about it, he doesn't wanna teach about it. What he wants to do is he wants to live through a that with his people closest to us, his disciples, and I think, I think all of us here today, he wants to live through the that with us. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to John chapter 11. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you or maybe in the seat backs in front of you. As always, we say around here, if you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like ours better, I've heard they're, they're nice and thin, go ahead and take them with you. We give those away all the time and we absolutely love it. There's a, there's a page number in the program. The words though are also going to be on the screen behind me and we're a mobile friendly church. So if you want to pull it up on, uh, on uh, Bible Gateway or something, we're good with that too. But while you're finding it, I want to tell you not just what happened in John 11, but in the previous chapter, in John chapter 10, because Jesus takes time and he says, he says, I am, which is a big loaded term, right? He's claiming to be the son of God. He's claiming to be the I am, the great I am, the alpha and the omega. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then people hear that he just claimed to be the son of God and they get so worked up and they get so angry that they actually, they pick up stones and they threaten to like hurl them at Jesus. His life is on the line. And so he gets out of Jerusalem. He flees away from, away from really the mob. 
and, and runs outside of town a couple of days. Okay, but before he left, it's interesting to me because he claimed to be the good shepherd of all of us, which, which that also means that the, that the bad news is that we're all sheep. Come on, really? I mean, it's dad joke, but like that, anyway, that's the bad news. We're all sheep. And, and the weird part, the, the, the truly, honestly, bad part about this or the frustrating, confusing part of this is that, is that it doesn't seem like Jesus is being a very good shepherd in the very next chapter. The reason why I'm saying that is because in John chapter 11, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. And you, and you kind of get the impression from the way that they send a, a messenger ahead, Martha, her name is, sends a messenger ahead that her brother and Jesus' close friend is sick. And, the, and you get the idea, the impression that he doesn't just have a stomach bug or a head cold. You get the impression that this man is lying on his deathbed and it's time to say your final goodbyes. Or in the case of Jesus, it's time to get on down here because you can do something about that, Jesus. I know that you can't. And so she sends a word and says, Jesus, your friend is sick. Please do something about that. And Jesus, in all of his infinite wisdom and good shepherding, goes ahead and does nothing at all. He doesn't move a muscle. He doesn't budge, which is totally and entirely frustrating because he's, he's already a couple of days away. You know, and, he, and he's got, if he's going to make it there on time, he has to get a move on like now. And so we want to say, like, Jesus, Jesus, Pack up your things. Get back to Jerusalem. I understand that it's dangerous. I understand that they tried to kill you last time you were in town. But Jesus, you have to do something about that. And he doesn't do anything at all. In fact, to make matters even worse, he waits until his friend Lazarus dies. And then his disciples are talking to him about why, why he isn't moving, why he isn't doing anything. And he, and he tells his disciples that, that, that Lazarus has now fallen asleep and and they start to think like, well, maybe that's good news because he's, if he's sleeping, he's resting, he's going to get his energy back. And, and you know, at that point, maybe he's going to make a recovery and we can visit him then. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. Lazarus is dead. And then he says what I think is one of the most insensitive lines in the entire Bible. And I still cannot imagine that Jesus said this. Jesus says something that's so heart-wrenching that I wouldn't recommend any of you. I'd be embarrassed if any of us said it to another person in mourning. But Jesus says it, so I guess I have to be okay with it. But Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. So that the glory of God will be shown now. And I think, come on. Jesus, he's your friend Jesus, he, Jesus, he's the one. John, writing this down, says, he's the one that you loved. Jesus, how could you say such a callous and hard-hearted hard -heart, hard thing? Like, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there and so that he died and I just went ahead and let that happen. But as time goes by, Jesus decides, now it's time to go. 
And now he packs up all of his things. Now after Lazarus has died, now after Lazarus has put him in the ground, he packs up all of his things and all of his disciples and they head back in to the lions, that head back into Jerusalem where they just tried to kill him previously when he was there. And we pick it up in John 11 and we'll start it off at verse 17 where it simply says, on Jesus' arrival, you know, just when he gets there, Jesus found out that Lazarus had already been put in the tomb for four days Four days. Four days. Could you imagine the embarrassment that would linger with a part of the disciples when he rolls in? When he rolls in, you just imagine there's a big crowd out in the courtyard. You just imagine everybody as they did in Jewish customs, they would weep and they would wail and it was, they would make a great spectacle over the grief and the mourning that they had simply as people were walking up to the house. And could you imagine through four days of this, Jesus finally gets there? I mean, it was expected of Jesus to be there, granted, earlier than four days, simply as a rabbi, simply as a respected teacher. But, but now he shows up four days late for a friend's funeral. I mean, you just imagine the disciples walking up the path and everybody is crying and wailing because they've been there for several days and they're in grief and the disciples are just kind of like covering their eyes because it's just so unbelievably embarrassing for them to be showing up so late. On top of that, when he says four days, John wants to go out of his way because he wants to let us know that, that there was a custom, that there was also a well-known belief in, in, in Judaism that, that the, the soul leaves the body after the body dies immediately and the soul just kind of lingers around the body, waiting, waiting in case things turn around that the soul will come back into the body. But after three days, the body, the body starts, to, starts to turn color and starts to decompose. And, and so they said on the, on the fourth day, on the fourth day, it was customary that the, at the end of the third day, the beginning of the fourth day, that the soul would leave the body, that would leave the place entirely, and there was no more hope whatsoever. So when John says that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days, what he's saying is it's too late for any physical turnaround. It's too late for any spiritual turnaround. It's too late for really any superstitious turnaround. He really wants to just make the point abundantly clear that Jesus is too late. And then he didn't do anything about that. But the story continues in verse 18 and tells us that Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary, that's those are sisters of Lazarus, to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So many Jews implies that Lazarus wasn't just an anybody. Lazarus was a somebody. Everybody, like a lot of people come and, and march this way. I mean, two miles is not a short distance. So all these people come close by. But again, Jesus, a friend and respected teacher, he's lagging behind. He doesn't do anything about that. So in verse 20, now when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Yeah, yeah, but Mary stayed at home. Why do you think she stays at home? She's angry, right? She's frustrated. I mean, she's, she's stalemating. She, she's going, stonewalling, no way. I'm not, I'm not going to give him the time of day. He didn't do anything about that when I know that he could have. But Martha, on the other hand, has just a, the right amount of anger to be confrontational. Martha runs out, right? And, uh, Martha runs out in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, and I love this line where she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Now that's a line that all of us in the room today either have said or will say. Because I want us to see, friends, all of us are Mary right now. 
All of us have said those things. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you would have been here, my mother wouldn't have gotten sick. If you would have been here, my grandmother would have had more time. If you would have been here, my marriage would have succeeded. Lord, if you would have been here, my kids would have turned out better. Lord, if you would have been here, everything would have been different. Lord, why weren't you here? You know, this is something that we don't, like, do very well in our culture. I'll just be, real. I'll just be honest with you. Like, like this, this mix of, like, like anger and, and faith, not, not like oil and water. They're not held in opposition to each other, but, like, both of them together. We don't do that really all that well. Um, you, you see, we tend to get angry, and we, and we like, shut it out. Or we, or we go to somebody else with it. We'll take our anger and we'll take that to the bar. Or we'll take our anger and we'll take that to the bottle. We'll take our anger and we'll take that to the computer late at night when we have no place being there. We'll take our anger and we'll do all kinds of other things except do exactly what Martha does, which is bring it before Jesus and saying, I'm angry. I also have faith, but I'm angry about this right now. You know, there's, uh, there's these connection cards that we have. And we talked about it in the seat bags. And it just asked for a, a spot for a prayer request. And then friends, it just it breaks my heart on a weekly basis to go through these week to week. And I just hear some of the stories. And I just imagine some of the anger carried in faith before without much else of an outlet and saying, Lord, if you'd have been here, we get cards about struggling with addictions to drugs, alcohol, pornography. Lord, if you're, if you're here then the struggle would be over, right? Lord, if you, if you would only do something about that. Lord, Lord, if you were here, I wouldn't have had to watch as, as my brother, husband, wife, whatever it is, is just like, like robbed away from me through, through physical diseases like arthritis and brain injury and cancer. Lord, if you were only here, you could have done something about that. Lord, if you were here, everything would have been different. You know, but then in the Bible, in Martha's day, they had an outlet for this. You know, in fact, if you were to take a Bible and you do like the old, maybe you did it as a kid if you grew up in church or something, and you just like open it up in the middle and let see, Psalms, there it is. And you just find Psalms and you start flipping through, you would see some of these Psalms just, just carry this tone of anger. But, but, but anger done out of faith, but anger in faith together, carried up before God. David, a man after God's own heart, King David in the Old Testament, he writes these Psalms, or that's a churchy kind of Christian word for songs. It's a songbook of the early church. And, and, and he writes these things, and he says in Psalm uh, 13, he goes, you know, how long, God, how long are you going to hide your face from me? How long are you going to let my enemies just trample me? He writes in, in Psalm 22, he goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David writes in Psalm 88, and, and he ends this very sad, very depressing psalm with, with it just this acknowledgement, God, you know what, at this point, at this juncture, I, I guess I'd have to say, and he goes, darkness is my closest friend. And then he signs off. What hope is there there? except for the fact that all of this was carried to God. All of this was carried to God and laid at his feet. We do this thing at Easter time where everybody gets so dressed up, it looks like all of our families are ready to go on a holiday greeting card. Like everything is fine. We didn't fight on the way over. We're good. We love church, right? And, and my kids get, ready, get themselves ready themselves. It's great. Right? But we don't have this way to like carry this frustration, carry this anger out like Martha does, putting it before God and saying, God, you could have done something. God, you still can. When are you going to do something about that? Which is her very next line in the, uh, 
in the story. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then something important happens in verse 22. He says, but I know, she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And then Jesus says something, he turns to her and he says something incredible. He says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And friends, isn't that the Easter hope, right? Isn't that the Easter hope that those that, those that we've lost will rise again? Isn't that what it's about, that, that, that they will rise, that Lazarus will rise again, Martha herself will rise again, the disciples following Jesus will rise again? Isn't that the Easter hope? You see, they believed something and they held on to something that, that we still hold on and we still believe today that's fundamental to our belief, that, that, that against all of the competing beliefs in this world, that against all of, the, all of the other religions and all of the other sects maybe of Christianity itself, that we believe that Jesus Christ physically and bodily rose from the dead. And that when he's, and then he said that the dead will all rise again too and stand before God. And God at that point will give each one of us exactly what the deepest longing of our hearts is. And if we long to be away from God, if we long to be done with God, if we long to be rejecting of God, and if we long to do eternity by ourselves, that God will say, fine, and step away. But the promise of Christianity, the promise of following Christ is also that the deepest longing of our heart is to be near to God, to be in God, to be with God, regardless of how well we performed or how well we executed that here on earth. If that's what the deepest longing of our heart is, God the Father will tell us, you are mine. And that is the Easter hope, that there's a resurrected body and we will live with the resurrected king from now on into eternity. And not everybody is on board with that now. Sometimes it's figurative, flowery, or metaphorical language. Just like then, the Sadducees were the toppest of the social ladder and the Samaritans were sort of at the bottom. Neither of these two groups believed that there was a bodily, physical resurrection coming. And so you hear Jesus speaking into the life of Mary in her grief, I'm sorry, Martha, in her grief and in her deep sadness and saying, Martha, your brother will rise again. There's Easter hope. She just kind of says, yeah, I know. I know there's Easter hope, but... It's been four days and I'm still without my brother. So she says, somewhat concedingly, somewhat dejected, she says in verse 24, Martha answered, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know. You know, I just imagine her saying this. I can't prove it. I don't know exactly. But I just imagine her saying this almost with a sense of like, of trying to convince herself that the words are true and trying to convince herself that the words are meaningful. I know many of you have been in that place too. I know. I know that I will see my brother again. I know that there's a resurrection coming. I know that we will be together again at the last day. I know. You see, what she believes that Jesus is doing 
She believes that what Jesus is doing is, is coming to her and telling her what, what many of you have, have heard in the visitation in the funeral home. She believes that Jesus is speaking to her and saying, Martha, you two are going to be together again someday. Martha, he's in a better place. Martha, there's heaven and he's there. And, and, and Martha, he's in a good spot right now. She thinks that he's comforting her with this hope of a resurrection far off then and there. And that's true. I don't want to diminish that, especially not today. That's true. But Jesus has something else because Jesus is about to answer that question that all of us have asked or will ask. Jesus is answering that question. When is God going to do something about that? And Jesus is turning to her right now and saying, yeah, the resurrection is true. Yeah, there's heaven far off. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah, you're going to spend eternity with Lazarus and with God, worshiping Christ in person at the throne. Yes, it's going to be so full of light and grace that, that there's not even going to be a sun in the sky because the radiance of God's own face is going to shine on you. Yes, heaven is real. Yes, that is good. But you should know this, that that resurrection in heaven isn't just a distant future event. The resurrection is happening now. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 25. He goes, no, 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 no. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live. Like, do you understand the importance of this? Do you understand how ground-shaking and huge that is? Commentators, like writing about this, flip out over it because what Jesus has just done is he's taken the resurrection, a well-known theological abstract sort of event in the future, in the distance somewhere, and he's like, he's like gone way out there and he's grabbed a hold of it and he pulls it back and he's saying the resurrection is happening now. New life is happening now. There's hope, not just in the future sometime, but there's hope that's happening now, the words of that song that we sung about how, about how God didn't want heaven without us, and so he brought heaven. Jesus brought heaven here, now, the kingdom, where we stand in our lives and offices, families and homes, now. It's, I thought I was going to get an amen. The resurrection is happening now, right? That's incredible. Jesus is bringing it right now. I, I am the resurrection and the life in heaven starts now. And then he asks, and then he asks the most important question in human history. He asks a question that all of us, no matter if you've grown up in church or this is literally the first time that you've come to church and you're a little surprised lightning didn't hit you on the way in, he asks a question that everybody, every one of us needs to answer. He asks a question that's even harder as time goes by. He asks a question that He asks a question that's maybe easy as a 6-year-old and getting older and older. He asks an easy He has a question that gets more difficult as a, as a doubting, stubborn, somewhat rebellious teenager at 16. He asks a question that at that at 36 is even more difficult to answer because because you've seen some loss, and you've seen some hurt, and you've seen some tragedy. He asks a question that at 56, and have buried people in the ground, and have left mourning and wondering when God is going to do something about that. Jesus turns to Martha, and he says, do you believe this? And so, friends, I need to ask, do you believe this? Do you believe 
That life with God isn't about winning heaven on a harp in a cloud sometime in the distant future. But do you believe that when you invite Jesus in, that heaven starts now? Do you believe this? Or is there a question still lingering? Or is there a question out in your mind that says, I want to, I just need to know when God is going to do something about that first. And so I want everybody, just where you are, that's all right, everybody to take out one of these green sheets. It's in the chairs, the seat backs in front of you. Again, take one of these, where you are, I'll wait, just, I want to see everybody move. Well, great, one of these sheets, it's cool, you don't have to turn it in if you don't want to. Still some people kind of resisting. Grab one of these sheets, seat back, might be underneath the chair, but hand one over to somebody else if they're not, if they don't have one. But grab one of these things, and if you want to, if you want to, Grab a pen and start writing out whatever it is that's keeping you from experiencing heaven here. Just write down that prayer request so that we can pray for you. We've got a small team called the Prayer Collective. They pray over these things every week. And we simply want to pray and honor God and lift these up before you because we want you to experience the joy that Jesus brings, the heaven that Jesus brings, not in a distant, far-off place, but right now. And if you don't know the answer to that question, if you're not sure what it means when he says, do you believe this? And if you think to yourself, as many of us had, I know, in your shoes before, and I thought, you know, I'm not sure because nobody's ever asked me that before. And I want to just simply remind you of the words that Jesus said previously. And he said, he said, if any of you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before the Father. So this is your opportunity. There's a box on the bottom that says, I made Jesus Christ my Savior today. And if you've become a Christian today or maybe, or maybe you've turned your eyes towards God for the first time in a long time, we want to celebrate with you. We want to, we want to honor that with you. We want to jump for joy and we want to help you and we want to encourage you and we want to, to invest and pour into you and do this journey together because none of us can do it alone. Whether you have a prayer request or, or whether you want to say, you know what? When you ask me that, when Jesus asked me that question, do you believe this? I want to say firmly and with confidence, I do, God. Help me in my unbelief. When Jesus asked that question to Martha, he says, do you believe this? And this morning, I'm not going to tell you what Martha's answer is. You're going to have to go and read that. You're going to have to read the Bible outside of church on Sunday. I know, it's crazy. I'm not going to tell you what Martha says because you know what? I think the reason why John wrote down that question that Jesus asked, do you believe this? Because he wasn't even interested in what Martha had to say. He wants to know what you're going to say here this morning. You're going to check that box and do you believe this for the first time in your life? Are you going to ask, are you going to ask for help and journey along the way so that you can say, standing before God, Father in heaven, yes, I do believe Listen, Martha isn't the only sister, though. And some of us need more help. And so for the rest of us, there's Mary. And, and Mary in the story, this is what's happened. In verse 32, now when Mary, still seething, reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, again, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. True words. And when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid them, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. In Jesus, most powerful words, I think, in the passage, in, in John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus stood before the tomb and wept. 
And right now, if you're in grief or if you're in loss, let these words just roll over you as Jesus whispers into your ear this morning, I know, I've been there. I've been where you are. I know that pain. I know it hurts. It stings. I know Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Yeah, yeah, but some of them said, could he not open the eyes of the blind? Have kept this man from dying if you were here? Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, not unlike his own tomb a little while later. And then Jesus looked up, looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit, for all the people standing here and all the people at Encounter Church and all the people who ever will hear this today, I say this for the benefit of all these people here that they may believe that you sent me. And then Jesus said something that nobody expected. He, in verse 43, he says, when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, I need everybody on your feet where you are right now. Just stand up where you are because Jesus goes out and he calls out in a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come out. And at this moment, friends, time freezes. Because whatever happens next, will define history forever. If nothing happens, if nothing happens, then my preaching is useless. If nothing happens, then our time is in vain. If nothing happens, then friends, I and many of you have wasted our lives if nothing happens. But if something happens, if something happens, then all of human history will hinge on the turning point of this man, Jesus. As we consider time split, there's a time before him and a time after him. If something happens, then we know anything can happen. If something happens, then we know. Then we know that we have a resurrected hope. Then we know that Jesus did, in fact, come from heaven, grab it and bring it down and bring it here if something happens. If something happens, all of the earth will shake and tremble at the sound of his voice. And the very next line is that the dead man came out. Amen. The dead rise. There's a resurrected king with a resurrected savior and a resurrected hope. This proves that if, that if this can happen, if a dead man can come back to life, can come out, then anything can happen. And if Jesus says that the resurrection isn't something that happens then and there, but the resurrection is something that happens now, and your life with him starts now, then we know that whatever your Lazarus is, whatever dark heart of your soul there is, whatever, whatever place there is inside of you that is longing to come out and longing for the light, we know that God can bring that too into new life. That if you look at your Lazarus and you say, my marriage is dead, my family is dead, my job is dead, Jesus is standing before you today and saying, I am the resurrected King. I am the resurrection and the life. And I'm bringing you new life because the resurrection isn't something that happens then. The resurrection happens now. And dear friends, make no mistake, He is resurrecting marriages and He is resurrecting families and He is resurrecting this community and He's He's resurrecting this city and he's resurrecting this church.